2: He tells her he can't buy high-capacity magazines in Connecticut.
3: He said, so I was wondering if I could use your address to have these high-capacity magazines sent to your house. From the New
2: England News Collaborative, this is next. How an aunt raised a red flag on a member of the family. And a recent survey reveals how wrong Americans are about the leading cause of gun deaths in the country.
4: Most Americans thought murders were the leading cause of gun deaths.
2: Plus, the hardwood industry in New England is getting hammered in the Trump administration's trade war. But unlike farmers, they're not getting any federal aid.
5: We have gotten absolutely no support other than comments of, you know, take one for the team or we can't help you, it's too complicated. It's next.
6: Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
2: I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. Over the past few years, a number of high-profile retailers have waded into the gun control debate. Last month, Walmart said it would stop selling ammunition for military-style rifles, The company has also stopped selling all handguns. Dick's Sporting Goods stopped selling military-style rifles and high-capacity magazines in 2018. In an interview with Marketplace, the company's CEO, Ed Stack, said the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, was the final push toward that decision.
1: Enough is enough. The system is broken. And uh, at that point, we said, we need to stand up and say something. We've got an expertise here. We know what's going on. We have to try to... We have to try to solve this problem.
2: Stack says the move cost his company about a quarter of a billion dollars in sales, but he says they have no regrets. One of the oldest U.S. gun makers, Colt Manufacturing, based in Connecticut, made a similar move in September. The company announced it would stop producing AR-15s for the civilian market. But in a statement, it said nothing about gun control and explained the decision by saying, we believe there is adequate supply for modern sporting rifles for the foreseeable future. Robert Spitzer is a professor of political science at SUNY Cortland in New York. He's the author of five books on gun policy, and he joins us by Skype to talk about Colt's decision and the gun manufacturing industry. Professor Spitzer, welcome to NEXT. Thanks for joining us. Yes, it's good to be with you. Well, first of all, let's talk about that statement that Colt released. They say they're responding to an oversaturated market for AR-15s. Do you see it that way?
7: I think their observation is correct. I think it is a market that has been well-saturated. There are many, many companies that produce AR-style assault-type weapons. Colt is one. Colt, I think, tends to be viewed as a more high-end product that is priced a little higher. It's become very competitive. And this has also occurred at a time where gun sales generally have been flat, even declining a little bit. That has especially been true in the last couple of years while uh, Donald Trump has been president, ironically, one of the reasons that uh, we see gun sales rise or fall is often because of political cycles, not just consumer demand. And when you have a friendly president in the White House when it comes to gun policy, that is President Trump, there's less political pressure to go out and buy guns to make a political statement. So that's kind of the backdrop for the current circumstance where Colt has decided to stop uh, selling Uh, AR-type weapons to the civilian market.
2: For the civilian market, you say, but they're still going to be making AR-15-style weapons for the police and for military to fulfill those contracts, correct? Uh, Yes, that is right. Given this marketplace currently, (laughs) uh, how has Colt been doing over the course of the last decade or so?
7: Well, the gun industry generally, I think, has been not doing particularly well Partly for a number of reasons, um, while you do see spurts in gun sales at times, there has been no dramatic increase sustained over a period of time of gun sales. Firearms are a very durable commodity. They, they, they can last for decades with the very minimal degree of care. And frankly, fewer Americans are interested in buying guns, owning guns, having guns. Many of the gun sales that do occur are people who already have guns who are buying more to add to their collections. We know that the average number of guns owned by the typical gun owner has increased dramatically in the last few decades. So there just isn't a huge market out there, and you certainly have plenty of companies vying for the existing market. Colt has not run afoul of business problems like, for example, the Remington Company, which is another very Old and storied company, where Remington filed for, I believe, Chapter 11 bankruptcy last year because they have been suffering. So Colt seems to be doing okay. I haven't seen, you know, final detailed business information about them, but compared to some other gun manufacturers, they seem to be holding their own.
2: I, I want to get back to that statement where they they talk about the adequate supply for modern sporting rifles. And and parse that a little bit, if if possible. We're we're seeing an awful lot of gun makers that are catching blowback from the large number of mass shootings that have happened with AR-15 style weapons. There's been a, a large scale movement uh, started by Parkland high school students, and that are trying to limit the sale of weapons like that. Is Colt's decision at this point? actually a decision about just not wanting to associate themselves with AR-15 style rifles more than it is a a market-based decision?
7: There is an important political subtext to AR-15 type weapons, similar types of weapons, which is indeed that they have increasingly been used by mass shooters, that uh, a growing number of studies show that when you use that type of weapon in a mass shooting, more people will be injured and more people will die than if you use other sorts of weapons. And the number of mass shootings that include the use of assault weapons has been increasing, especially in the last 10 years. So there is a real stigma that has been attached to these weapons. And even though Colt made no mention of this cloud that hangs over assault weapons, the fact is they must be aware, fully aware, That that is part of what is involved in selling these weapons. So one can't help but come to the conclusion that this political subtext is probably at least one reason why they decided to curtail sales to the civilian market.
2: There is, however, something that's more tangible hanging over the gun industry. Uh, There was a lawsuit filed by families of the Sandy Hook shooting victims against Remington. Uh, That suit went after the company for how it marketed its Bushmaster AR-15 model, which was used in that shooting. I'm wondering if Colt and other gun manufacturers are reacting to a lawsuit like that, thinking that the way that we've sold these weapons in the past may well come back to us in lawsuits from the public.
7: We have seen a more aggressive litigation approach being taken towards some gun manufacturers. And even if these lawsuits do not prevail, if they are allowed to go to trial, it does provide the... uh, those bringing the suit to engage in discovery, that is to obtain documents, emails, internal messages, et cetera, from these companies, which could result in the revelation of information that could be at the least highly embarrassing to some of the gun companies. And of course, litigation can be a black eye. Even if you prevail in the end, it's expensive, it's time consuming. And that by itself may be a bit of a further consideration about why a company might like Colt might decide that uh, manufacturing and selling assault weapons to a civilian market is too much trouble. And why not just bypass that and focus on other things?
2: Robert Spitzer is a professor of political science at SUNY Cortland in New York. He's written several books about guns and gun policy. He joined us today by Skype. Professor Spitzer, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
7: Good to speak to you.
2: A Connecticut man is expected to appear in court again this month. He's charged with the illegal purchase of high capacity magazines Connecticut's one of only three New England states to ban such sales, including Massachusetts and Vermont. After getting information from the FBI, police in the city of Norwalk used Connecticut's red flag law as part of their investigation. Connecticut Public Radio's Ryan Lindsay has the story of a New Hampshire woman who made the difficult decision to report a family member she thought posed a risk.
8: Melissa Potter told police she had a story to tell. Her nephew had called out of the blue to ask a favor.
3: When the phone call came in, I was in the kitchen. And whenever the phone rings, you know, you look at the caller ID and I saw Brandon's name on it, which surprised me because he has never called me before.
8: Brandon Wagshaw told her he was building an AR-15 style rifle and needed her help because he was running into a little bit of a problem. He wanted to buy magazines that could hold 30 rounds. But in 2013, selling and purchasing magazines with more than 10 rounds became illegal in Connecticut where he lives. Potter lives in New Hampshire.
3: He said, so I was wondering if I could use your address to have these high-capacity magazines sent to your house.
8: So Potter stayed on the phone, trying to change her nephew's mind about buying the magazines. Then the call cut off, leaving her standing at her kitchen counter, shaken.
3: I was thinking about, you know, the mass shootings that have, that have taken place, where you see it on the news and you read the stories that they have these high-capacity magazines. And when they intend to kill a lot of people, they come in with a lot of ammunition ready to kill.
8: A few days later, Melissa called the police in Norwalk, Connecticut, in her town in New Hampshire. Her wife, Leanne Potter, submitted an online tip to the FBI, then called to make sure it had been received.
7: This was not one of those things to be taken lightly. And it just, you know, you don't want to have the death of a lot of people in this kind of a situation on your hands.
8: The FBI followed up with Melissa. A few days later, the couple sat down for dinner. Leanne looked up and saw Wackshaw on TV.
7: It was a mugshot. Generally, people who are into it that far are getting ready to do something. Nobody who's going out and doing target practice or hunting wears a bulletproof vest.
8: Using information the Potters told the FBI, Norwalk police investigated Wagshaw. They say their records revealed more than a decade of incidents, and police allege he once told a classmate that he could make the Virginia Tech mass shooting look like nothing. Police say the combination of Wagshaw's desire to buy high-capacity magazines and his history of threats represented a, quote, clear and looming danger. And they suspected he had access to guns, so they filed what's known as a risk warrant. This is an element of Connecticut's red flag law, which allows police to confiscate someone's guns if they're judged to be a risk to themselves or others. While searching Wagshaw's car, they say they found illegal high-capacity magazines. That led to his arrest. Lieutenant Terry Blake with the Norwalk Police Department was there that day.
2: Obviously, Wagshaw did not commit that crime. Um, there's no telling if he would or would not have committed that crime. Uh, only he knows that. But ultimately, you know, that information that was gleaned from this um, was alarming.
8: Waxhaw was charged with four counts of illegal purchase of a high-capacity magazine. His lawyer says he plans to plead not guilty. And authorities have yet to charge him with anything related to violence. Police say the Potter's calls led to a successful investigation. And Melissa says she's relieved that her nephew was arrested. But it wasn't an easy thing to do. There's also a feeling of shame that's associated with it, that how could this
3: happen to a member of my own family? that could have possibly even thought about killing innocent people.
8: It is a shameful thing, and I have not shared this with very many of my friends. Melissa says she shared her story with police because she didn't want to witness another mass shooting that she could have done something to stop. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ryan Lindsay.
2: Ryan Lindsay is part of the reporting collaborative called Guns in America, which recently surveyed people about gun deaths and storing firearms. They partnered with APM Research Lab and Call to Mind for the poll. Lisa Dunn is research editor for Guns in America, and she joins me to talk about the survey results. Lisa, thanks for joining us on Next.
4: Thanks so much, John. Good to be here.
2: Let's talk about some of what you found. What did Americans think was the leading cause of gun deaths?
4: So it turns out that Americans thought uh, that most Americans thought murders other than mass shootings were the leading cause of gun deaths. And that was about 33% of the folks that we surveyed. And the second largest category was actually mass shootings. So about 25% of Americans that we surveyed thought mass shootings were the leading uh, source of gun deaths in the U.S. And only 25% guessed correctly that it's actually suicides that are the leading category of gun deaths in the U.S. and and they account for about 60 percent of all gun deaths annually, uh, which averages to about 19,000. So it turns out that only a quarter of the Americans that we surveyed actually knew what the leading cause of gun deaths is in the U.S.
2: Why do you think that there's that inaccurate perception amongst the American population?
4: Yeah, I think it has to do with um, certainly media coverage. Uh, as you know, there's a lot of attention paid to mass shootings. So I guess it's sort of not surprising that um, a lot of Americans think that that maybe that's the the kind of uh, largest source of gun deaths. And, you know, murders themselves, they also get as well uh, media attention. So I, I don't think it's totally surprising. Um, suicides tend not to get as much coverage. Uh, for various reasons. And uh, so it's, it's sort of the findings weren't, weren't entirely surprising to us.
2: For comparison's sake, you, you say about 19,000 deaths by suicide a, a year in the U.S. Uh, what is the real number of deaths by mass shootings as, as you've defined that term?
4: Right. So, um, and I'm glad you said as you defined it, because as you may know, there's really no agreed upon definition for mass shootings. Various definitions exist, um, you know, according to the FBI and the Gun Violence Archive. But if you you look at sort of a broad definition, and and that's what we went with in this case, it's about in the area of 380 per year. So it it amounts to about less than 2% of all the gun deaths that happen in the US. So it's it's a, it's
2: a tiny fraction. So, so let's turn to the questions about storing firearms with a with a lock. What were some of the survey results there and what questions were you asking folks?
4: Right. So we asked people um, if they have a gun, uh, what do they do with it when they're not using it? Um, so we were interested to find out do you store your gun with a lock in place? And what we found was that about 60% of um, uh, gun owners that we surveyed said that they always stored their gun. Um, And about 19% actually said they never stored the gun with a lock in place. And then we also asked, would you support mandating that guns be stored with locks? And what we found was broad support for that kind of Mandate 78%, basically 8 in 10 of the Americans we surveyed supported that guns should be stored with a lock in place, and only about 18% opposed that. Now, this had broad support across all demographic groups. Seven in 10 Republicans supported a locked gun mandate. Um, 66% of gun owners also supported mandated locked gun storage. A little bit more support from women than men, um, and a little bit more support in metropolitan areas than in more um, suburban or rural areas.
2: Were you surprised at that broad support?
4: I actually, yeah, I actually was surprised. Um, you know, as part of this survey, we also asked about red flag laws. And so that generated the same level of support as for gun storage. So it seemed like these two kinds of laws uh, definitely got support across the board, Republicans and Democrats um, and gun owners and non-gun owners alike.
2: Describe, if you would, how you asked the question about red flag laws, because like other things having to do with guns and gun ownership, there are different ways in which people could perceive that question.
4: Right, so what we asked is whether they supported allowing two different types of situations, allowing either a family member or police to seek a court order to temporarily take away guns if they feel a gun owner may harm themselves or others. So it was sort of a a two-choice question and what we found is that there was really strong support for the idea of a family member member initiating um, a red flag law or what's known as an extreme risk protection order. That was at the level of 77 percent of the Americans we surveyed. A slightly lower number around 70 percent supported red flag laws that would would be initiated by law enforcement.
2: I should ask you about some of the demographic splits in the surveys that you put out there. You've already alluded to this and we've read for years that there are big differences in how people perceive gun issues depending on their age, potentially their race, the part of the country where they live. Could you talk a bit more about about who you asked these questions of?
4: Right. So our survey definitely includes folks from all geographic areas. It's definitely representative of the entire country. And you're right, we did find some differences. Um, But I would say that the differences are minor.
2: So our listeners here in New England can take these results and say, yeah, this pretty much represents us too.
4: Yeah, I think they can. I mean, I think we did find, uh, when it comes to red flag laws and safe storage laws, uh, we did find slightly higher support uh, in the region that we termed the Northeast. So that would include your listeners uh, in the New England region. And so there is slightly higher support in those regions. But again, it's not statistically so much higher that your listeners would feel that somehow they're in some kind of a minority.
2: Lisa Dunn is research editor for Guns in America. Lisa, thanks so much for being with us here on the program. I appreciate it.
4: Sure. Thanks for having me.
2: Coming up, President Trump's trade war with China hits the hardwood lumber industry hard, and there's no federal aid in sight. Plus, a new rule could bring more development to Maine's North Woods. It's part of the largest expanse of forest east of the Mississippi.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York.
2: From agriculture to steel, President Trump's trade war with China is taking a toll on many U.S. industries. But here's one you might not have heard about the hardwood lumber industry. Sawmills and lumber exporters are watching their foreign markets slip away. The hardwood industry accounts for tens of thousands of jobs in New England, but unlike other agricultural industries, it's received no relief from the federal government. WBUR's Wilder Fleming has our story.
1: Trevor Allard hops in his pickup truck and heads down to a sawmill in Brattleboro, Vermont. Along the way, he passes semis piled high with lumber, waiting to depart for the highway. Trevor's father co-founded the Allard Lumber Company nearly 50 years ago, down along the Connecticut River, where his grandfather once farmed the land. The farmhouse was right here. The
9: barns were bigger then. They knocked a whole bunch of it down,
1: Across the country, hardwood lumber processors like the Allards are struggling under the burden of Chinese tariffs, targeted at species like oak, ash, and cherry. China first levied these tariffs a year ago, an act of retaliation in its escalating trade conflict with the Trump administration. Before the trade war, China was the industry's largest export market. Since the tariffs took effect, there's been a 43% decrease in hardwood exports to China. On the Allard Sawmills Observation Deck, sales manager Jason Applin looks down on a grinding expanse of computerized blades and conveyors as they devour log after log in showers of sawdust, churning them out into square-cut timbers and custom boards, which clatter down the beltway to be sorted. Applin says it takes months to get a shipment of lumber to China. So when the price of the lumber drops 25%, you've got 4 million feet of logs that you've you know, money for based on a higher price, you're losing money. This is
0: catastrophic for this industry, I believe.
1: That's Monica Hastings, sales and marketing manager for Cersosimo Lumber, also in Brattleboro. Cersosimo sends 90% of its red oak overseas. The vast majority goes to China.
6: I thought the recession of 2009 was, was pretty harsh. But this is, it's harder to strategize a solution for think we're all feeling like puppets on a string.
1: Hastings says President Trump's unpredictability on trade policy creates volatility in the hardwood market. She says that's a far bigger problem than the tariffs themselves. President Trump argues this is necessary, a hardball negotiating tactic that will benefit the U.S. economy in the long run. Here he is at the G7 summit in August.
10: China's been taking, out of this country, $500-plus plus billion dollars a year for many, many years. Many, many years.
1: It was time to stop.
5: I am the first to admit that the Chinese do not play fair.
1: That's Jamie French, owner of Northland Forest Products, headquartered in New Hampshire.
5: But I'm not sure that it's fair to put that burden of this trade war on a sector that has struggled as it is over time.
1: The hardwood industry has been shrinking for decades. But as China's furniture manufacturing ballooned in the wake of the Great Recession, so did its demand for American hardwood. The United States exported $2 billion in hardwood to China in 2017. In the past year, industry representatives say, that market shrank by over $600 million. In May, the Trump administration granted U.S. farmers a $16 billion relief package to help make up for losses related to the trade war.
5: Unlike the other main row crops, uh, we have gotten absolutely no support other than comments of, you know, take one for the team or we can't help you, it's too complicated, you're not really an agricultural
1: product.
2: The hardwood industry is collateral damage in Trump's trade war with China.
1: Jim Hordigan runs the Lime Timber Company in Hanover, New Hampshire. The company acquires and manages millions of acres of forest all over the country. He says the trade war has had a particularly devastating impact on sawmills in red states, including Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Tennessee, with mills cutting hours and some closing their doors.
10: A lot of the hardwood sawmillers were supporters of Trump and, in some cases, willing to take a bloody nose for what some believed was
7: the greater good of getting China to play fair in other industries what the industry didn't realize was how long this
2: trade war would go on for. And I think a lot in the industry are saying, you know, it
1: doesn't seem that anyone really cares. In July, a group of 13 Democrats and 25 Republican members of Congress signed a letter to the U.S. Department of Agriculture calling for the hardwood industry to be included in future farm aid packages from the Trump administration. They say they have gotten no response. In a statement, the USDA says the hardwood industry has received over $5 million from the department's Agricultural Trade Promotion Program. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Wilder Fleming.
2: Take a bird's eye view, and a huge swath of Maine looks like endless forest. It's a bit deceiving, though. There are small roads and some homes in the state's north woods, but they're sparse and they're hard to notice. However, a rule went into effect this summer that could change that, it would bring in more development. David Abel is a reporter for the Boston Globe. He wrote about this rule change in a recent article. David, welcome back to Next. My pleasure. What was this rule change? Who did it affect? So, from the New Hampshire border through New Brunswick is the
11: largest uh, forested land east of the Mississippi River. And much of that is called the North Woods. And some 10 million acres of land in Maine is essentially forest. And this land is, is worked has been worked on in some respects by mill companies and uh, has been harvested for its lumber for, for generations now, but there has been very little uh, residential or commercial development in terms of subdivisions, in terms of commercial real estate, and that sort of thing. And at the same time, there is sporadic development in the sense of there are small Uh, homes that have been built in patches throughout this territory, and the concern is that this new rule which allows for more development closer to towns could expand the footprint of all of that residential and commercial development so that this incredibly
2: vast wilderness could uh, be altered irrevocably. So more development closer to the towns that do exist. Maybe you could explain what what that means. How how much more development would we, we be looking at?
11: So the current rule essentially says that you can't build a house or subdivision or commercial property if you are any further away than one mile along a road from existing development. That perimeter under the new rule will extend now to seven miles. Who's happy about this rule change? Who wanted it to be into effect? So there were uh, certain interests that were pushing this and have been pushing this for quite some time. And that includes some of the towns in this vast area, some of the small towns that exist. And uh, for them, it's a matter of uh, tax base. So they think that by encouraging or allowing for more and specific kinds of development closer to towns, it will potentially encourage a growing tax base in their towns. There's also some concern that the current rules have allowed for a patchwork kind of development uh, that already exists and that has extended in a scattered fashion throughout the woods. And in some cases, these municipalities are responsible for extending their fire and medical services through a vast area which makes it very difficult for them to serve. So there are a variety of explanations for why this rule uh, has uh, had been lobbied for and why it had has finally taken effect. And if you talk to the folks in the state who have supported this and guided these changes... They argue that the, uh, that the concerns by environmental advocates are overblown and that the likelihood that it will ultimately lead to a million acres, additional acres of land being development, is highly unlikely and that in some cases it'll just lead to more sensible development.
2: More sensible development. I mean, it is something that on its face makes a little bit of sense, right? These are towns that don't have much of a tax base. They probably want to consolidate their services somewhat near town. What about the opposition? What are they saying? Why why isn't this a good idea?
11: Their principal point of view is that the current rules have, or the previous rules before this new rule took effect, have worked. Uh, The of the 10 million or so acres of, uh, of undeveloped or unincorporated territories, only about 1% has been developed so far. And so their point of view is, why change something that has been working? And if you look at the maps where development is allowed, it just potentially opens up all kinds of opportunities for development that previously
2: did not exist. And what kind of development do people fear? This is pretty far out there in the woods. I can't imagine that you're going to see big cities springing up or huge subdivision developments. What sorts of developments are environmentalists worried about?
11: Well, uh, actually, that in some cases may not be true. We just saw a few weeks ago uh, the largest landowner in Maine, a Canadian real estate developer, just got approval to build a large subdivision in uh the northeastern woods of Maine so in some cases there could be a, a significant amount of development that said the the proponents of this change have said that the economy has been changing in uh in these in rural Maine and uh and the development rules have to adjust for that so they are seeing more um, uh, more kinds of tourism geared to mountain biking and hiking as opposed to fishing and folks who perhaps wanted to escape deep into the woods and not have any services or uh, any sign of civilization. And their view is that that has changed and people uh, who are visiting this territory now want more um more access to a variety of services and the perception is that this new rule will allow for the kind of development that would support that and and allow for
2: a new kind of economy to take hold. How have environmentalists reacted to Governor Janet Mills signing off on this change?
11: When I asked
2: that question, it
11: seemed somewhat mystifying to a lot of these folks. And this, to be fair, this, w- this was in the works before she took office,
2: but they have supported it and allowed it to take effect. Uh, she's also said that she wants Maine to become carbon neutral by 2045, and we've certainly read quite a bit about large forested lands being something that can help cut down on overall carbon emissions. Does anybody see this as a bit of a contradiction, you know, developing more forested land just as the state is trying to find ways to to cut its carbon emission and and maybe soak up some more carbon with all these forests? If indeed this new rule leads to more development,
11: as is feared, that certainly will counteract the efforts by the new administration to reduce carbon emissions. The uh, unincorporated territories of Maine is a huge carbon sink, and uh, any efforts to diminish that carbon sink would be detrimental throughout the
2: region to reduce our carbon emissions. David Abel covers environmental issues for the Boston Globe Uh, He joined us today from the studios of WBUR in Boston. David, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much. Likewise. Thank you so much. Coming up, we'll take a fall tour through New England. It's next.
6: is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust.
2: Last fall, Ian Aldrich took a six-day road trip through New England. He and a photographer traveled through Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont with a goal, to squeeze as much out of fall as they could. Aldrich wrote about his journey in the September issue of Yankee Magazine. He's the deputy editor there, and he joins me in the studio to tell us about his voyage. Ian, thanks for coming on next. I appreciate it. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm happy to talk about this trip. I loved it. I, I, I can imagine. First of all, it sounds like a really great trip. Uh, tell us about the itinerary. First of all, where'd you go?
9: It's not a route I would recommend to anybody. It was like a bunch of figure eights and loop-de-loops. And, you know, it made no sense. It's it's not logical. Uh, we started in Maine at the Freiburg Fair, which is sort of, if you know the Freiburg Fair, it's one of the biggest agricultural fairs in New England. And, it, you know, it's got the, the big animal contests. Uh the woodsman competitions. Uh, it's got fried food, fried everything, right? And uh, I had come with one expressed intent, which was to enter the anvil throwing contest. Ah, yes. <clears throat> I had never thrown an anvil in my life, and I went in there arrogantly, thinking, "A bit-ish top five, maybe top sure. three if I'm if I'm good, second to last." And the only reason I didn't finish last was because the eighty one year old gentleman from Rhode Island <laughs> was tired from his drive up to Maine earlier that morning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it was he, a he,
9: humbling start. He was a former professional anvil thrower? <laughs> That's what I want to tell myself.
2: Oh, my, my goodness. So so you go from anvil throwing in Maine and you, and you travel around in these loop-de-loops yeah. to go through northern New England and just find the best foliage mm-hmm. or find the best things to do. Finding
9: autumn, you know, and autumn is the time of year when, you know, the whole region kind of comes alive. You have craft fairs. You have agricultural events. You have harvest suppers. Um, apple orchards are open for business, corn mazes, the food scene is exploding. And so I hit on this kind of idea a couple of years ago. What if we, myself and my photographer friend, Mark Fleming, what if we just got in an RV and for six days tried to pack in as much as possible? Did you meet obstacles on your, on your journey? <laughs> <laughs> well, we met some obstacles. Um, the weather didn't always cooperate. But part of autumn isn't just about the leaves. It's about all these other things, right? And so... We took this the the, the famous killer drive in the White Mountains, known as as the Kangamangas Highway. Um, We uh, had a drink on the porch of the Mount Washington Hotel in the White Mountains. Part of it was just sort of unplanned discoveries. And uh, we we found this uh, place called the Great Vermont Corn Maze in Northern Vermont. It's set on a dirt road, off another dirt road, off another dirt road. It's rural by even Northeast Kingdom standards, right? But it's the biggest corn maze in New England. And two weekends a year, they uh, create this thing called Dead North, and it's a haunted corn maze event. And you go through the corn, and you go through these outbuildings in the dark, and it is totally terrifying. I, <laughs> I was, it's an hour-long journey. Twice we were jumped out at by uh, someone with working chainsaws. Uh, I kept running into the woman in front of me. I eventually just stopped apologizing. I realized when we got through it that my fists had been clenched the entire time like I was ready to box somebody. (laughs) Um, But it's so well done. It's uh, this guy, Mike Boudreaux, who uh, created this corn maze several years ago. And it's just this event. And we had no idea. I had no idea. And it was totally worth it. I'm not usually
2: one to go for, like, big scary things, but I would do it again. It's just in the middle of peak foliage season for parts of New England, yeah. it's already passing for some other parts. Um, not, not quite passing, though. Not quite <laughs> passing yet. I guess I'm, I'm I'm. wondering, do you have any tips for people who want to go out and find the best places to go? I have the most important tip
9: imaginable. Yeah. Yeah. Peak foliage is not a singular event. Yeah. It's not a single moment in time that's going to hit the entire region at one time. And it starts north and it rolls south. Um so if you feel like you've missed it, you haven't. You just have to move a little further
2: south and you'll probably hit it. I have to ask you as you're planning at Yankee Magazine for what you're going to write about during the autumn. How exactly does that go because this is it's like the most important time of the year. It's it's your Super Bowl. How do you prepare? <laughs> it is our autumn, Super Bowl for autumn in New England at Yankee Magazine. Well, um sometimes
9: it's uh revisiting some familiar places um, sometimes it's really kind of thinking outside the box, like taking an RV trip for six for six days. A couple of years ago, um, I hit on this idea. I, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire. I've seen foliage tour buses roll through, and one I was out for a walk, and one just kind of steamed past me. And I looked at it, and I was I got to thinking like who who are the people that ride in those buses, and what version of New England do they do they get to experience? So um, I got a chance that my editor signed off on it, and I I hopped on a foliage bus tour for a week the following year. And I was the only native New Englander. And again, I got to play tourist. And in some cases, I got to ride along with people whose lifelong dream had been to come to New England in the fall, Mm -hmm. and they were sort of experiencing that finally. And uh, so sometimes it's sort of getting inside the experience of being a tourist like that.
2: Yeah. And what was that? What were they telling you? I mean, these, these folks, I presume, from places like Texas that had never seen this sort of foliage before that have al- always wanted to come, were they getting the real deal? It was very early October, and we had started
9: south before we headed north. And finally, when we hit north, it was peak color. And l- I, I literally saw people... Jumping out of the bus when we pulled into a stop up in the White Mountains, this one woman hugged a maple tree and gave it a big kiss. I mean, it was just it was it was so
2: neat. (laughs) (laughs) Ian Aldrich writes about fall and other things for Yankee magazine. He's a deputy editor there, and he has a piece about his travels through Maine, New Hampshire and Vermont in search of autumn in New England in the September issue of their magazine. Ian, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's shift gears now to the spookier side of fall in New England. Season two of the TV thriller Castle Rock premieres later this month. It's based on Stephen King's fictional main town with the same name, Castle Rock.
12: We're searchers, you and me. But you deserve a chance to make a place in the world. See, I'm a searcher who just wants to settle.
4: Wants it bad.
2: The show is set in Maine, but it was largely shot in the town of Orange in central Massachusetts and in Devon's at the region's largest film production studio. Today, we'll revisit a story by WBUR's Andrea Shea that she did last year during season one of the series. She explains why this high-profile show is seen as a game-changer for the Massachusetts film industry and for the town of
0: Orange. You know, you run into somebody in the grocery store and that's the first thing they say is, are you
12: going to watch Castle Rock? On a driving tour, Brenda Anderson of the Orange Police Department points out locations crews altered to transform her hometown into the cursed fictional Castle Rock. She says it's been exciting for the small, tight-knit community. Stuff like this does not happen to the town of Orange. Anderson helped coordinate logistics as a star-studded cast, and hundreds of behind-the-scenes crew members descended on Orange, population 7,600, about 80 miles outside Boston.
0: No offense to you city people, but being out here, we're sort of forgotten. It's like, oh yeah, once you get past 495, then there's like this dead area, and then there's the Berkshires, and you know, stuff like that doesn't happen out here.
12: A lot of scary stuff happened here during the 10-month Castle Rock shoot. The show's plot weaves together some of Stephen King's iconic storylines, characters, and settings. All in all, Anderson says things went smoothly during production, aside from a handful of traffic complaints. As ominous clouds gather and rain begins to pour, we head for shelter in Anderson's second workplace— Trailhead, an outdoor gear and general store she owns with her husband. It's on a depressed block in the town center.
0: Pretty much us and Tech One are the only businesses on this strip. Like everything right, else. There's is a lot closed.
8: of a lot of empty storefronts.
0: Yeah, which made it easy
12: for Castle Rock to do stuff for filming. Anderson says Castle Rock brought some economic sunshine to Orange. The producers rented homes for makeup and wardrobe. They also paid for new electrical wiring at the Universalist Church to fix up a rundown park and gave the town money for its upkeep.
0: In a town like this where budgets are always like this huge fight and always like there's never enough money to go around, the parks department would never get $10,000 to just upgrade. Never. So... That was a huge plus.
12: According to the production, Castle Rock spent more than $750,000 on location fees to businesses, residents, and the town, which doesn't include money spent on supplies like lumber and paint from local retailers. The folks in Orange aren't the only people who've been benefiting from the streaming series Arrival.
10: So, Soundstage 4. So it's uh, 18,000 square feet, and they all are 18,000 square feet. So it's 150 feet by 120 feet, 46 feet of elevation to the perms, which is where the technicians work to hang lights and backings and things of that nature.
12: That's Gary Crossan, general manager at New England Studios in Devons. This full-service production complex houses four state-of-the-art sound stages like the one we're in. Daddy's Home 2 built a two-story chalet in here. But Castle Rock is the studio's first big-budget series. Crossan says it also marks a big step for the evolution of the state's film industry
10: series television or series streaming these days is uh, you know a big deal for Massachusetts or any state that can attract that kind of a project because it's a much more long term user than a feature film
12: To understand why this is seen as a milestone, we need to go back to 2006. That's when the state instituted the film tax credit to attract Hollywood to Massachusetts. Next came the growth in numbers of skilled local crew to work on incoming productions. Then infrastructure, meaning sound stages where productions could set up shop and film. The industry's growth coincided with the explosion of high-quality content from streaming providers like Netflix, and Hulu.
10: This is all about 21st century jobs, just as much as Amazon and Biogen and other companies of that sort are 21st century jobs. All of these streaming content providers are also 21st century jobs, and we ought to be leading the league in that as well as in the other areas.
9: There's a steady progression. It takes time
12: Bruce Mole, editor of Commonwealth Magazine, analyzed the impact of the more than 180 productions that have worked in Massachusetts since the 25% film tax credit came into play. The incentive's value has been controversial and questioned by many, including Mole.
9: You know, if you had any industry and you said, whatever you spend, we're going to cover a quarter of the cost, I think you'd see growth over time. It's a very expensive way to boost a business. I just don't know in my head whether the trade off is worth it.
12: But Mole says if the incentive was reduced or eliminated, as it has been in some of the other states that have them, the Massachusetts industry would take a hit.
9: This is a business that goes where the numbers work, and they're very good at creating Maine in Orange, Massachusetts. So they can also create Orange, Massachusetts in Maine if the price is right, I imagine. I got a call from Shawshank. A kid in a cage. Call from who? Don't know yet.
12: Back at their store in Orange, Brenda Anderson and her husband smile as they watch their hometown in the latest Castle Rock trailer. A woman jumps into their river. A drone shot swoops into town. A main character stops in front of the Universalist church. Anderson says the show has done much more than bring stars, jobs, and money to Orange. It made the town feel good about itself.
0: It's a beautiful area, but this was something we could actually be proud of, like, look at our town, Hollywood wanted us. And that's pretty cool.
12: Anderson says if Castle Rock didn't come to town, they might have been forced to shutter their shop. Now she's stocking Castle Rock t-shirts and coffee. They're hoping Stephen King fans will come see Orange for themselves, and they're also hoping for a second season.
7: There's a place where lovers go
12: To cry their troubles For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Andrea Shea.
2: Orange, Massachusetts is getting that second season of Castle Rock. It premieres later this month.
7: Where the broken hearts stay You can buy a dream or two
10: To last you all through the year
2: You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. We had help this week from Glenn Alexander at WBUR and Cliff Gallagher at WAMU. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight, Blue Moon, Mile 12, and Wise Old Moon. I'm John Dankoski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Publics Radio.